every business, I don't care who you are, I don't care how big or small you are, one of your most important things is to say, I need people to surround me that can look at the things that are important from many different perspectives that I'm not going to be able to do because I don't have those perspectives so that I can find out what's behind those blind spots and fix them before they become a problem. Well, one of the most valuable ways to do that is by harnessing the generations because a millennial is not going to look at a problem the same way that a boomer or an Xer is. So grab as many as you can and to ask them the questions. What am I not seeing? What's not getting done? What am I doing wrong that I could be doing better? I mean, they're, they're hard questions and they're awkward and sometimes painful questions to ask. But do you want to be wrong? Do you want to, do you want to allow your organization to slip backwards because you're not seeing something that to everyone else is, is just blindingly obvious? No, of course not. So bring them in, bring them in. It's important. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It is so hidden by the negative noise in our media that I'm calling this wave a conspiracy of goodness. Yes, it is still an amazing world out there. And on this podcast, we will introduce you to some of the people making it that way. If you're tuning out the negative news and and, and all that noise, this podcast can be the place where you get some connection, progress, remarkable inspiration, and you can learn about countless ingenious ideas improving our shared futures. Right now, we have to know about good news to think better thoughts, and to have better ideas ourselves, to be our best selves for the people we love and our coworkers, we need to know about what's right with the world. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, host of this podcast and founder of its mothership website at the Goodness Exchange, a global website where you can have instant access to positive news with no politics and no advertising agenda. The purpose of this podcast and the Goodness Exchange is to shine a light on what's right with the world. And we can get started with that right now. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Steve Shepard, a fascinating man who has become a great friend of our mission at the Goodness Exchange. After I heard his presentation on the differences between generations, like baby boomers and millennials, Gen Xers and Gen Zers, we all have complaints about the others. But his insights, and his views on what's possible for us all, if we get communication between the generations right, well, his insights are breathtaking. Today, Steve gives us some insights that feel like a superpower once we can harness these new perspectives about people who are not from our generation. He points out how we can appreciate the differences between our generations and how we reward others, how we can use generational differences to discover our blind spots when we're trying to innovate. Steve is a consultant who travels the world helping organizations discover new paths and possibilities that are hiding in plain sight. And that's exactly what he's going to do for us today. He's an author, photographer, educator with more than 30 years experience in the technology and communications industry, exactly where we all need to be to be on journeys of what's ever next for us. He's written over 90 books on so many topics. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a voluminous body of work. And every time I talk to him, 
I feel like he says something to me that saves the day. So today we're going to talk about this repeating generational archetype. Turns out there's four, and, and he studied them all the way back to the year 1100. So when these four archetypes repeat about every 20 years, you can count on some really good things happening. And instead of focusing on everybody else's shortcomings, what would the future look like if we stop squabbling and complaining about each other and use the dialogue about our differences to create a new world of possibility? So welcome, Dr. Steve Shepard. Okay, so welcome, Dr. Steve Shepard. Steve, I am so glad to have you talking to us about this very timely and everyday important topic. So am I, Linda. This it is a big topic, and it's you know it's amazing to me how many myths and legends and mysterious mists there are around it. So let's see if we can clear some of them up. Oh, it's so great! This is actually the third time I've recorded something with Steve over the last five years on this exact topic, and you know I mention it, Steve, to almost everyone I talk to who's struggling with internal complications in families or in workplaces or what have you. What I love to talk about is the missed opportunity, because that is something we can jump on. If we can, It is. It is. And let's also be real clear up front that, you know, this is not pop psychology. This is really about a cohort theory or the law of large numbers. You know, you get enough people in a large enough sample size and you will start to see behaviors that are quite common among them. And that's the key. Is everybody purely one generation or another? Of course not. No one is. But there are overwhelmingly sort of standout behaviors that we can chart. And I think that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never never a generalization that applies to everything. But I think as people follow us through this conversation, they're going to see, oh, that is so what was happening in our work group the other day or in our family around the dinner table. Okay. So first, let's start off with give us this the big 100,000 foot look at the concept you and I are going to talk about. The four recurring generations and why there's the, the science, a little bit of the science behind and what it means. Sure. So what we know from the folks who really study this stuff in depth is that there are four generational archetypes that repeat in a four generation cycle. Each generation is born for about 20 years. So the entire cycle is about 80 years. So every 80 years, the cycle repeats. And if you look at the four generational archetypes in terms of the four generations that are sort of alive and around today. We have the silent generation. Those that would be my parents' generation, born roughly 1925 to 1945 or so. And then we have the baby boomers, myself, that's 1946 to 1964. And then we have the generation X, which is 65 to 81 or thereabouts. And then we have the millennials from 1982 to about 2004, and then the newest generation coming in, which is, by the way, notice that's the fifth. So this is the this is a repeat of the silent generation, my parents' generation. They're called the plurals, and their birth years are somewhere around 2005 to, say, 2025 or thereabouts. And so what we know is that every time the new generation comes into play, we start to see another repeat of this behavioral model that we've tracked for so long. And I mean, I personally have tracked it back to the middle of the 11th century, at which point I just gave up because I got bored and lazy, I suppose. But it goes back long before that. It's fascinating. Okay. And so the gist of it is, is that each generation of these four 
recurring archetypes. And that's the best. I think that word is really important, right? It's not a hard and fast rule. We don't all think the same, no. but there's sort of an archetype. And the gist of it is, is that we each have things that we value, but they are substantively different. So it could cause some friction. We each have different ways of thinking about urgency in our life or work-life balance or gosh, pick any of the word. Mental health is a different kind of term for each generation. That's what we're going to unpack today is as much of this as we can possibly get to that will be relevant. Am I right? You're absolutely right. And just a kind of a quick example of that, right? I mean, this is, this is the gist of what we want people to walk away with. How do you want to be rewarded at work? This is a great example. You hear people say, for example, millennials don't care about money. Of course they care about money. They have to pay the same rent everybody else does. They have to buy food. They have to fill their car with gas. Everybody wants to be rewarded. The question is, how do they want to be rewarded? For example, you do something really great at work. You go beyond the pale. You know, you stay late on a Friday night to get the job done that needs to be done by Monday morning. You don't want to, but you know it's important. So you hang around and get it done. If you're a baby boomer, you want them to hold a parade in your honor on Monday after it's people realize what you did because you want to be recognized for what you did. Generation X, the next generation says, I don't want a parade. Take care of me. Take care of my family. Give me an extra day off. Just don't make a big deal out of it. Just demonstrate to me that you care. Okay. The millennials don't want to be individually rewarded. They want the team that they work with to be rewarded. So, you know, the point is everybody wants to be rewarded, but how you reward them is going to vary by generation. And the key to success here, the key to a happy managerial life in the workplace is to be deliberately cognizant of these differences. It doesn't take that much more work. It just takes a pause and a thought process. It's not hard. Yeah. And if you take that one example, by the way, if people see me holding a pen and looking down, I'm taking really careful notes so that we can make the show notes for this episode very, very specific. So if you want to share just some one part about this that's happening on your work team or in your family, you'll be able to go to the show notes. So sorry if I look like I'm writing. Okay. So with that in mind, this kind of example that you just gave us one little nugget, I think this is happening to us all day long, right? Like from the time we have struggle with getting our teenagers out of bed and off to school in the morning to what we face when we get to the morning meeting, who's paying attention, who's not, who's who's already, who's late, why not? And all the things. I mean, we're just constantly bombarded what different people do at lunch with their free time. I mean, it can go on and on, right? It can go on and on. Remember the last time you had a tetanus shot, Linda? Okay. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. the next, the, I'm sorry to bring that up, but you know, the yeah. next time Man, your shoulder was just killing you. Yeah. But you know what was even worse? Apparently, every human being in your town learned that you had a tetanus shot because every one of them is coming up and going, hey, Linda, how you doing? They're all punching you in the shoulder, right? It's like, what is wrong with you people? How did you know? Well, they don't know. They always punch you in the shoulder. You're just not aware of it because you don't have that extra little pain point to cause it to happen. So this generational stuff is sort of an intellectual tetanus shot. You're going to be sorry to say this, people kind of forever changed with this knowledge. It's a bit of a superpower because you're going to become hyper aware of behaviors that aren't good, bad, right, wrong. They just are. And the key is the superpower is, do you know how to harness that? Do you know how to use that in the workplace or outside the workplace, as the case may be, to make a difference? That's the key. That's the secret. That is the secret. 
it is like a superpower. And that's why I've interviewed you three times on it. I know that now. I've never thought about it quite like that, Steve. It's because I sit quietly in meetings that way I would otherwise be making a bad face or shaking my head. We all do these verbal, this, this nonverbal language that we're speaking to each other at, around the dinner table or in meetings. And I would be doing that as much as anyone because I have kind of a big personality if I didn't have these insights that luckily you shared with me years ago. I sit there and I listen harder. I wait for what I'm supposed to hear from someone, no matter what I think of how they're dressed or what generation they're from or, or their skills or their lack Absolutely. of experience. Yeah. yeah okay. you know, there's an old expression from West Texas that I love. It says, never miss a good chance to shut up. And I think that applies here so well, because if you're talking, you're not listening. And so the opportunity to talk, uh, to listen, the opportunity now to listen, that's a gift. If people open their mouths and talk, they say it because usually it's something that's important to them. They're giving you something of value. Shut up and listen. Hear what they have to say. Internalize it. You may be able to use it later on. You know, I mean, that, that you can't put a price on that. And these are challenging times in businesses. We need to be, we need all the brains in the room. Like something that somebody who's 62 might have experienced could be that fundamental little insight that we're missing if we're 32, just because they've been around the block a while. And then other days, it might not be them that who are the idea person, right? That's exactly right. You know, I, I often say that if you look at these sort of tripartite of the workplace, you know, the plurals aren't quite old enough yet to really have been in the workplace very long, if at all. They're still pretty young. But certainly the boomers, the Xers, and the millennials are. And the boomers are, you know, they're on their way out, thankfully, for a lot of people. <laughs> but, you know, the boomers are old enough. They're starting to cycle out. That means Gen X is moving up the pyramid into positions of senior leadership. And the millennials are now moving into positions of middle management and upper middle management. And they all bring something important. If you think about it, the boomers have been around longer than anybody else. And it's so easy and fun to poke at the boomers. I get it. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just easy. But we've got a lot of wisdom. You know, we've been around the block a few times, as you said. And, you know, quite often, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past, you know, you'll see somebody doing something and you say, I remember when I did that. And I remember when I did it the same way and it didn't end well. I think I'm going to go tell them that. That's not an attempt to say I'm smarter than you are. It's an attempt to say, I'm trying to save you the trouble because this is painful, what you're about to experience. You don't have to. So we bring wisdom. The What Gen X brings is really intriguing. Gen X is a kind of an interesting beast because they have a foot firmly planted in both of the generations on either side of them. And they're in this, they're a very practical minded, entrepreneurial, independent kind of generation. So they can suck stuff in from both sides to their ends and make things happen. What the millennials bring more than anything else, besides an extraordinary amount of technical expertise and innovation, is energy. They bring a lot of energy to the workplace because they work in a very collaborative way. And we all know the old expression, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Well, when you get that many people working as kind of an engine, great things can happen, but you sort of need all three. You know, another way to describe the boomer position on things is they're the institutional memory. They're the ones that kind of remember how we got where we are today. Was it all good? Of course not. But a lot of it was. Why throw that away? Don't you want to preserve that? Because that's good or bad. That's what got us where we are right now. So take the good, discard the bad, learn from it, and move on. 
But don't just toss it out because they're old and therefore have no value. One of the greatest little stories I run across, I interviewed a guy named Chip Conley. Chip was the guy that the founders of Airbnb hired to ah. be their wise elder. So the guys, when they were first starting Airbnb, they were 27 years old. <laughs> and Chip Conley was 43. And he ancient. was the, ancient. Yeah, ancient. He was the wise elder. But the reason why he got that job was because he is arguably the the originator of the whole boutique hotel industry and was really when he was at a zenith, that's what he was famous for. Well, these guys recognized that there'd be something that Chip Conley could bring to the table that Airbnb should pay attention to. Not all, not even most, but some that could be the difference between life and death for the endeavor. And he tells, he talks about it I, in our interview in a lovely way where he had to think hard about when he was going to interject. Then he had to be super okay when he offered an idea and it and nobody picked up on it. I mean, isn't it all about listening and just getting comfortable with give and take? It is, and it's also being cognizant of context. In other words, strongly believe in any situation, it's one thing to deliver a message that says, here's what I believe is a good idea. But all too often, those ideas are delivered without why they think it's a good idea. Here's why I think you should think about this. It's not because you're wrong. It's because I want to add something to what you just said. It's the same reason that whenever I give criticism, you know, if I'm teaching a course, for example, and my participants have to do a, you know, some kind of an exercise, and then I have to give them feedback, I don't come up to them and, and say to the person that did it well, that was extraordinary. And the other person I say, Maybe you should consider a career in the commercial food industry. I don't do that. What I do is I walk in and I say, okay, here's what I really liked about what you just did. And then I tell them. And then I say, here's an idea to make it better. And I tell them. It's additive. It's not subtractive. I'm saying to them, what you did was good. You can do it better. Here's a great, here's a great addition to make that happen. And I think the same is true here. It's that context element that is often left out. And by the way, I will fall on my generational sword here and make note of the fact that boomers are particularly guilty of this. You know, boomers want to be in charge. It's how they were raised. You know, there's a reason that Alexander Haig, you know, I'm in charge, right, during Vietnam to the president. Probably not the right thing to say. But the point is that representative or indicative of the way this generation believes and feels and thinks. And so, for them to want to be in charge means they want to not only tell you what to do, they want to tell you how to do it. And that can be destructive. That, you know, no wonder that's off-putting. Of course, people are going to go, yeah, yeah, boomer, you know, boomer. I get it. Okay. Before we go too far, let's give people just your short course on the on some fundamental differences between each of the generations. And then I'm going to have you tell the house painting story. <laughs> okay. Because... That I mean, I remember the first time I heard you give this presentation, it was in a meeting that I was attending, a continuing education course with a whole big giant room. And I tell you, I knew that Dr. Shepard was on something. I camped outside the room afterwards, practically pounced on you when you got outside and said, we have to regret this. That was great. I'll never forget that. (laughs) (laughs) And we've been friends ever since. Okay, so. Help us just give people the gist, because I know, and then we're going to talk about multi-generational families. That certainly happened since the pandemic more than ever, these multi-generational workplaces. Talk to us about just the gist of the differences that are pretty fundamental and important in families and workplaces between the four archetypes. 
Okay, so I'll start with the silent generation. Okay, again, born 25 to 45, roughly. So close to the beginning of the 20th century. These are people who grew up during the Great Depression, didn't experience it as adults, but they watched their parents experience unemployment and bread lines and the challenges of that. And they were shaped by that. World War II came along, they all went off to war. When they came back, the economy became quite strong. They all went to work, many of them in blue collar jobs. But the point is they all went to work for very large corporations and the corporations made a sort of a social pact with them that said, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a job for the rest of your life. I'm going to give you a really good salary. I'm going to give you four weeks of vacation. I'm going to cover 100% of your medical, dental, optical care. I'm going to give you a savings plan that I'll match dollar for dollar, and I'm going to give you a full pension. All right. All I ask in return is that I'm going to own you. You're going to become part of this big corporate machine. And so people looked at that and said, well, having seen what my parents went through, fine, I can deal with that. I'm just going to keep my nose down and just get the job done. Hence the silent generation. They didn't complain much because what they got was pretty darn good when you think about it. Unfortunately, every generation tends to reject some or all of their parents' generation. So the next generation is the boomers. Okay, again, 1946 to 1964 or so, their parents said to them, basically, keep your nose down, keep quiet, don't make a fuss, you're nothing special, just be part of the board, don't try to rise above. And they said, what are you talking about? Of course, I, I want to be more than that. I mean, I want to be seen for who I am. And so they rejected that, they responded. And as a consequence, they kind of became this generation that was very much committed to work. Work for boomers, sadly, in some ways, is not something you do, it's something you are. A lot of boomers define themselves by the job they do. And that can be problematic only because it makes it difficult for them to kind of balance some of their lives, activities. And again, some of that is apocryphal, but the point is that they work a lot. And there's a reason that many of them retire and then immediately leap into a second career or leap into you know, some activity beyond just puttering around the garden because they need to feel like they're contributing something important because their whole career, they've been that way. Question? Okay. So just to make sure, I think if we think about it in terms of age, it might help people kind of understand who we're talking about. So I just did a little quick math in my head. The people who are the silent generation would have been my parents' parents. So they would be, I kind of did the math, maybe age 75 to 95, somewhere in there. That's right. That's and exactly. the boomer generation would be about 57 to 74, somewhere in there. That's correct. Okay. So if your parents or grandparents or, you know, your, your neighbor is falling in these zones of age, then this is who may, hopefully some of the things that Steve is saying are, are clicking and you're going, that is why they were like that, right? Absolutely. Like, and Linda, this might be a good time to note that for everybody, there, there's always a little bit of overlap between the generation, like three to five years or so. There's kind of this fuzzy area. And the people that fall in between there are really interesting because they're called cuspers because they tend to be born on the cusp of change between two generations. And they often make really good leaders and managers because they can sort of see the world through both generations that they're part of, which is kind of intriguing. Yeah. So if folks know somebody who really doesn't quite fit with any of these stereotypes, and maybe they do have some leadership qualities that you really admire, if you, if you really look at their birth date, I've been really looking at that ever since you introduced me to this concept. And I see it all the time. The folks that have their feet, that can have, are lucky enough to have their feet in two canoes. 
seem to be the kind of people we all trust instantly that we all, you know, keep an ear on for the tips we might have. Okay. So, so we've got 57 to 74. We've got the silent generation, 75 and older. Now what? So now we move into the, now we move into generation X. So these are 1965 to 81 or thereabouts. Okay. Mm -hmm. These are the children of the boomers. Now, uh, what's really interesting about this generation, of course, is remember who we're talking about. These are the children of people for whom work was their reason to exist. I'm exaggerating, but you understand my point. And there's another name for this generation. They're called the latchkey kids because this is the generation of kids that came home from school by themselves on the bus with a house key around their neck because both parents worked. Both parents worked. And so they needed to let themselves into the house and do all the stuff that needed to be done around the house before mom and dad came home. Now, some of this was, let's face it, economy dependent. We're talking about the 70s. You know, the economy was nasty at that time. Interest rates were through the roof. I mean, we think it's bad now. People go back and look at what the economy looked like during the 70s. And you'll be very happy that we are as low as we are in terms of inflation and credit cards at 21% for crying out loud. Anyway, the point I want to make here is that this generation was very independent, very self-reliant. They became extremely, extremely good at what they did. They also took a lesson from their parents and said, you know, family is really important to us, really important. And so, yeah, I'm willing to work hard. In fact, I'm willing to work long hours if I need to, but I'm not willing to give up my family for it. This is just a job. I have a family I want to keep. And so, That was kind of a a clawback, if you will, from sort of the boomer behavior. And then we move from there into the millennials. And the millennials are interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, let's look at the birth years, 1982, right, to 2000. So, or sorry, 2004. So my daughter, Christina, was born in 1982. So she is the, on the oldest end of the, of that range and she's 40. Okay. And so these are people, you know, we tend to talk about the kids, but they may be kids to us, but these are middle managers. These are people with budgets to spend, you know, hey, business people pay attention. Okay. Here's the other thing you need to know about this particular generation. They are extraordinarily cooperative, extraordinarily do they believe in working in teams, collaboration. And they also are a generation of people who, and I celebrate this every day. They want to make a difference. They want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And that matters a lot, especially in a corporation where competition right now is absolutely fierce. And every company that sells the same product as the competition is looking for ways to get ahead, to look different. Well, here's an idea. Hand that off to the millennial generation. Let them figure it out. I'll give you a good example of that here in just one moment. The thing about this generation also is that they are the single largest generation in the history of humankind. Now, I'll give you some numbers here, folks. You might want to write these down just to see the scale. There were about 56 million silent generation workers at any point in time in the workplace. 56 million. 74 million boomers. Very large generation. At the time, the largest ever. Okay. So we go from 56 million to about 74 million. And then because ex- because boomers, I joke about the fact they didn't like children very much. Well, we have two and we like them a lot. So I can sort of disagree with that. But their lifestyle caused them to occasionally say, you know what? I'm going to choose not to have kids for a variety of reasons. I'm just not going to. Bottom line is we went from 74 million boomers to 46 million Xers. Radical drop in numbers. 
And then the Xers take us to the millennials, where we find 90 million of them in the workplace. Now, lest you think that the only thing that the Generation X did was have children, let me clarify that and say that the millennials are actually the children of two generations. Because what happened was the boomers, because they were so big, had a kind of a late stage bloom where they woke up one day and went, we need kids. I want to have children. And as a consequence, what you get is this, what's called an echo boom, where you end up with a large generation because two generations contributed to its creation. And, you know, healthcare also was part of this, right? I mean, one of the reasons the boomers had less kids was because birth control became readily available and a woman's right to choose became readily available, at least at the time. And so what you end up with now is a lowered birth rate. And now what's happening is people are living longer and they're having babies later. And as a consequence, we started to see boomers in later in life having children, which were millennials. So it's a fascinating kind of thing. And then once you leave the millennials behind, if you think about the cycle where we started was silence. So the next generation is called the plurals. And the plurals were born roughly 2005 to what will probably be 2025 or so. They're almost over. And they are a repeat of the silent generation. And that's pretty important. And in fact, let me make one other little comment here. You know, we often hear people criticize the millennials because they are outspoken. They are very good at what they do. They demand things at work, some of which is the hubris of youth, but some of it is because they're right. But here's another thing to know. They get criticized a lot. Snowflakes, lazy, don't want to work. They share characteristics with another generation. If you think about the cycle, silent to boomer, to Xer, to millennial, and then back to silent again, although it's the plurals now. If you think about that cycle, it should make sense that if that cycle is correct, and it is every time, then the millennials must be a repeat of whatever generation came before the silent generation. And in fact, they are. They are identical in every way you can possibly imagine to a generation that had four names. They were known as the greatest generation, the hero generation, the GI generation, and the civic generation. Those are millennials. And if you think about the greatest generation, there's a reason we called them the greatest generation. The millennials are doing many of the same things that that generation did, just in a different way. So, yep, easy to criticize. Of course, they don't do things the way you do. Doesn't make them wrong. And oh, by the way, there's a lot of them. So you might want to pay attention. (laughs) Huge. This is so huge. It's so easy to just discount these qualities that are that we have access to again. Right. If they were at short supply during our when our generation was in charge. Now we get access to them again through a whole generation that are going to bring forth. I love that comparison. That really brings it down to real life, to to think about that greatest generation. And by the way, that's a fabulous book. If And we're going to put that in the show notes. The great, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, and it would be a very interesting book for a millennial to read. And with this knowledge that you're sharing with us today, Steve. Indeed. Okay. So, okay. So the way I look at it, this is that this knowledge that you just gave us, we could relax a little bit, lean into our differences a bit in our families, in our workplaces. So 
Talk to us about how this works. For instance, during the pandemic, my gosh, I know a lot of families, including my own, our kids had to move home. They were all <laughs> sort of kicked out of college. Their colleges asked them not to come back that, that, that spring break of March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And they each brought a significant other with them. And then there we were. We went from my husband and I to eight of us living in our house for two and a half years. So that was a generational shock. And I got to tell you, the most important thing my husband learned was to choose our battles. We were getting pretty set in our ways. Yeah. And then we just, I don't even remember a time when we allowed the situation to spiral out of control because we knew this could go on forever. And it was really important for us to rein in our own impulses. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to us about, and then you've got this generation where our parents are living older than Gosh, in my dental practice, I can't tell you the number of people who retire thinking they're going to have this wonderful retirement stretched out in front of them. They're 60, 65, but they're taking care of a parent who's living to be 95, 100. So they don't get to go off and vacation where they wanted and have these lives. So talk to us about how this awareness can help us in multi-generational family situations. Sure. So it, frankly, it's a corollary to the multi-generational workplace. Many of the same rules apply. In the family environment, it's once again a matter of awareness. I mean, the thing about family, of course, is you have the added complexity of there having been perhaps a parent-child relationship that has now been unraveled a little bit because the kids are grown and out, still there. I mean, they come back and move back in and now where are you, right? So that can be a little bit of an issue. But simply being aware of the generational differences in terms of what they want, how they interpret getting together, what's important, what's not, what they see as formal, what they see as not formal, rules of engagement, all those sorts of things vary by generation. I mean, Xers, if you've got Xer kids, they want to be left alone, leave them alone. They need that. It's important to them. And you see it, uh, you, but I mean, people, older people, you know, us, we see it as they're being reclusive or they're depressed or something's wrong. No, they just want to be alone for a while. Let them be. They'll be fine, right? Millennials, I don't know if you experienced this, Linda, but truthfully, millennials, you know, the minute dinner's over, they want to gather around the same table and play Yahtzee. I mean, they, you know, the night's not over. We're, we got stuff to do together. You know, you put them in a room by themselves and they self-destruct, they combust. Because they need that engagement, that interaction constantly. In the workplace, of course, that's good because what that means is they're good problem solvers. They're good at innovating. They're good at collaborating. They're good at communicating. They just don't do it the way we do. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is that in the family environment, I think we're now going back to, for the most part, a kind of a semi-normal world as COVID kind of releases its grip on us a little bit. But I think that people are learning that we all do things a little bit differently, that we all want the same things, and that a little bit of awareness, a little bit of of cognizance, for lack of a better term, of what the other side, if you will, is looking for, what they want, goes a long way. And this goes back to shut up and listen, right? I mean, if people would just ask the simple question, help me understand why you do that, they'll tell you. And by the way, it works both ways. Why are boomers the way they are? Well, it's the way I was raised. Mm. And you don't just turn that switch off. Mm-hmm. It's part of who I am. I can't just walk away from it because where am I going to, what's going to replace it? There's nothing to replace it. That's part of who I am. So, you know, it's an intriguing problem. 
really well, is. you know, you've reminded me that one, one of the thought leaders that I've spoken to on the podcast gave me this wonderful rap a long time ago about, and it's become something I say all the time due to your insights in combination with hers. I'd like to say when someone's talking to me and maybe I'm not feeling so great about in harmony with what they're saying or whatever, maybe I'm feeling a little ageism or what have you. I say, wow, that is so outside my life experience. Tell me more. Wow. What would a world look like if we all just memorized that sentence? That is so outside my life experience. Tell me more. And maybe we said it twice. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And, you know, one of the things that we're all guilty of, because it's a comfort thing, but this thing I'm about to mention is something that is actually creating real issues in society today is the problem of confirmation bias. The fact that we tend to believe those things that are in alignment with what we already believe because it just confirms that I'm right. No, it confirms that you're closed minded. Right. And you and I both. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm not really going out on a limb because we've had this conversation, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think one of the reasons you and I both do the podcasts we do is because we live in terror of being wrong. Uh, Why would I want to go through life wrong? Why would I not want to know more about, I don't know, everything to help me live my life better, to help me serve others better, to help me be more effective, more compassionate, more involved? Why would I not want to understand what drives my grandchildren. I mean, I I was doing a series of workshops last week out in Cedar Rapids of all places. And I told this group of executives in the room who were questioning me a little bit on this stuff. I said, listen, you all think you're smart. You all think you're well-informed. You all think you are on top of your game. Let me make a suggestion to you. Sometime next week, I want you to take a walk in the woods with a three-year-old. You have no idea how it feels to be that stupid. Why does it live under a rock? Why is it in the water? Why does it smell like that? Why does it stink? Why does it feel like that? Why does it taste like that? Why can't I eat that mushroom? Good luck. Okay. The point is they're not afraid to ask those questions because they're looking to expand their mind. Wouldn't it be nice if we all kind of got back to that? And that's the point is we, there's always something new to learn as long as you're willing to let it in. And it's as true about the generational world as it is about why you can't eat that mushroom under the tree. As it is about the diversity and inclusion we're trying to get into our workplaces these days. I mean, we are a, we are in need of ideas, <laughs> novel ones, ones that come out of nowhere. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to think that everyone has an opinion that comes from somewhere that we might need to listen to. You're right. And there are so many little subliminal things that we can learn. For example, when I do this stuff, I'll often have audiences get together in groups and how, what are we going to do differently when we get back to the office? How are we going to use this? And then I have them come up with arguments about why it won't work or what might be a a roadblock or a challenge to them. And invariably they use the same word. And that is, well, you know, we could do that, but right there, that word, that little three letter word means you're wrong. It means no. So what I do is I force them in in the workshop. I'll be a little bit silly here. I have what I call the butt bucket. And it's merely a little, usually like a fishbowl or a little galvanized bucket from the kitchen or whatever. And I tell them when we're in this part of the session, every time you say the word, but you put a buck in the bucket, buck goes in the, in the butt bucket, say that three times fast. 
we had $116 in the bucket to go to charity, by the way, at the end of, at the end of that last session. Cause what I want him to say is, and, you know, that probably won't work. And there's a way to get around it. That's what I want to hear people say, because what that says is I'm willing to consider a broader point of view. And generationally, that's something that we all need to be thinking about because again, none of these generations are right or wrong, good or bad. They merely are. And whether you like them or not, they're here to stay. And oh, by the way, if you think about the workplace, these generations that are younger than you are, are going to inherit the workplace. So I don't know, you might want to maybe help them given the fact that they've kind of got your retirement funds in their hands. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and the other way is true too, is that why have to just learn from trial and error and trial and error and trial and error. I, if you've been beat up even twice by trial and error in business, you know, that if you can, that's, that was the whole purpose of the Airbnb guys hiring Chip Conley. They knew they could go from A to Z that much quicker and maybe live. (laughs) Yeah, that that's yeah. absolutely correct. And you know, and part of that of course is and I think this is perhaps the most important thing that that I find myself talking about these days is that we all have what are called in the world of ophthalmology blind spots, scotomas, where we can't see things for a variety of reasons. Now in in the world of being an eye doctor, it happens because of retinal separation or macular degeneration or an injury in the eye, whatever. But in the world of business, it's typically something you've been looking at so long that you don't see it anymore. This is the famous, if it ain't broke, don't fix it argument. The problem is it is broke. You just don't see it anymore. And when that happens, congratulations, you're worshiping at the feet of the status quo. And the minute you start doing that, another word for that is being complacent. And when you're complacent, that's like blood in the water. Your competition will come at you with everything they've got, hammer and tongs. And they will pass you, which means you're moving backwards. And so every business, I don't care who you are. I don't care how big or small you are. One of your most important things is to say, I need people to surround me that can look at the things that are important from many different perspectives that I'm not going to be able to do because I don't have those perspectives so that I can find out what's behind those blind spots and fix them before they become a problem. Well, one of the most valuable ways to do that is by harnessing the generations. Because a millennial is not going to look at a problem the same way that a boomer or an Xer is. So grab as many as you can and to ask them the questions. What am I not seeing? What's not getting done? What am I doing wrong that I could be doing better? I mean, they're hard questions and they're awkward and sometimes painful questions to ask. But do you want to be wrong? Do you want to, do you want to allow your organization to slip backwards because you're not seeing something that to everyone else is just blindingly obvious? No, of course not. So, bring them in, bring them in. It's important. All right. So this is, these are sort of expansive ways of thinking about what's possible. We're going to take a break now and we come back, we're going to talk very specifically about some things like the generations and work-life balance and mental health, why it works for some generations and others are horrified by the whole thought. I mean, there are a lot of friction points in society that if we just understood where each other comes from, we could get to some smooth sailing and collaboration that could make us have unknowable leaps. So let's take a break and we come back. We'll continue our conversation. Sounds good. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange and host of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I want to share something wonderful with you today. So you know how the constant negativity in the news and social media 
seems to be at some sort of boiling point right now. It's relentless. It can feel like all the joy and potential is being drained out of our future. Nope, it doesn't have to be that way. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that optimistic people have instant access to positive news. There are news stories out there about astounding solutions to some of the world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. It's not a lack of goodness, it's a lack of awareness. So if you want to try living with more joy and way less fear, it's really simple. First, head over to goodness-exchange.com where you can balance your media diet and feed your curiosity about a world with real-life stories celebrating people solving the world's greatest problems. And second, you can become a Goodness Exchange member. And for just $2 a month, you can help us keep the site ad-free. And what you're going to get is high-quality, carefully curated stories all about the good that's happening in our world. And all of it sent directly to your inbox or via our beautiful app. In the face of all the negative noise and often discouraging things that happen in our personal lives, you'll be the one who can stay on your feet. You can point to possibility and be the person who makes opportunity of setbacks. People who use the goodness exchange have a spring in their step. Every day they radiate joy and confidence because they know far more about the complete picture of what's going on out there in the world. You can do more and be more in a positive way for your kids, your coworkers, your family, and all the people around you. Because you're going to be filled with stories of goodness, remarkable, ingenious solutions, and progress. Super simple to open the door to a new landscape of possibility for yourself and others. Just get instant access to what's right with the world and leave all the negative noise behind. You can use it every day by heading straight over to goodness-exchange.com backslash join. And you can get 14 days on us when you sign up for this membership. Thanks so much. We hope you'll join us in making the world a better place. There is a conspiracy of goodness going on. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably part of it. Okay, we're back with Dr. Steve Shepard. Steve is uh, the author of, I'm going to let him tell us how many books he's authored. He's also an amazing public speaker. <laughs> Old stuff behind you. Steve, how many books have you authored? 97. Bad habit. Oh, my gosh. Okay. On a breathtaking variety of topics. Steve is also a real student of the natural world. In fact, I think I very first met you over nature photography. He's an um, amazing eye for the beauty and wonder of the natural world. And he's been a business consultant all over the planet, even grew up in an international way. So Steve is in this incredible position to share with us this 100,000 foot look. And I hope we can continue the conversation with just that angle, huh? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So let's start ticking off some issues that I know there's a lot of friction in families and work groups. Let's start with work-life balance. What does work-life balance mean to the four generational archetypes? That phrase to me, I tend to think of it as sort of literary empty calories. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. And what I like to do is whenever I hear that phrase, I replace it simply with the word meaning. And what I mean by that is 
every generation wants meaning. Everyone wants to be appreciated for what they do, and they want to create and contribute meaning to the workplace. And so they do it in different ways. And I think that the key here is that when people talk about work-life balance, it's often in a critical way. So for example, boomers do tend to work really long hours because boomers, because of the way they were raised, their resistance to the way their parents did things and so on, they do tend to define themselves in many ways by their work. I mean, you can identify the species, you know, if you left your generational guidebook home, you forgot it when you went out to with your binoculars to look for generations. You can always tell the boomer when you go meet somebody and you go, I'm pretty sure that's a boomer. And you go shake their hand and you say, hi, I'm Steve. How are you? They will introduce themselves back and say, you know, I'm Linda. So what do you do? Right there, right there, you know, that's a boomer because they don't really put what you do behind everything else. They don't care about your hobbies or your family or your dog or whether you went on vacation last year. They want to know what you do because in many ways, that's their measure of a person. And I don't mean that to be like a hypercritical comment. I'm just observing that's what you see. I mean, that's how they behave. Okay, so the work-life balance thing for them is they are often criticized because they work really, really, really long hours. Okay, to the exclusion of all else, sometimes, sometimes, but it makes them feel good. It feels, they feel accomplished. They feel like they're getting stuff done. They feel like it's important to them to do that. Generation X took, takes a much more balanced view of things. They say, look, I'm willing to work long hours. I get it. But you know, that old expression, poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. Well, they're kind of the generation that lives by that mantra. And so basically what they're saying is, look, if there's an emergency at work, of course, I'll be the first one on the wall. I mean, I get it. It's my livelihood, okay? But don't let it happen too often because this is a business we're running here and it's important to me, but I also have a family and they're just as important to me. And I can find another job. I'm not going to go find another family. So that's kind of a, a interesting little dichotomy. And then when we get into the millennials, very, very interesting the way they operate because the millennials, it's almost like this seamless continuum Work and life just are. And it's been exacerbated by the fact that we now have so much work at home going on. I mean, even, you know, pre pandemic, we had a lot of people that were working at home using Zoom and things like that. And, and of course, the COVID pandemic just made it grow even bigger. And now a lot of companies, the smart ones are looking at this and saying, okay, we can reduce our real estate costs. And these people are happy and they're very productive because they know how to use these digital tools well. Let's just let them. And so it's, to me, it's about meaning. It's about, are you satisfied? Are you feeling good about yourself? Are you getting the job that you were hired to do done in a satisfactory way for your company? And at the same time, are you taking care of your whole self? Are you taking care of your, you know, are you going on vacation, right? I mean, are you, are you doing the things that you as a human should be doing to take care of yourself? in addition to taking care of your professional life. So yeah, to me, it's just a, it's a bit of a misnomer and it's more of a meaning issue than anything else. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And that, that does, that does explain a little bit about the great resignation. If you want to call that what we've been through in the last maybe two years, people mm -hmm. really looking at what they're doing, saying, what happens if I do this for the next 10 years and moving on, resigning, or at least questioning what they're doing and trying to find more meaning. Maybe that's it. This work-life balance is too much of a nebulous term. Yeah, it but is. And there's another factor at work here as well. And that is that 
now this is me talking, but it's based on a, looking at a lot of organizations that I've worked with. I, I think that whereas everyone's calling this the great resignation, I think we can also call it the great reckoning. Because one of the things that's happening is that many of the people who are choosing not to go back to work are choosing that route because they didn't feel valued. They worked there because they had to. I mean, think about all the people you know who work, for example, restaurants and other small businesses who at most get 39 and a half hours every week. Mm -hmm. Because if I hit 40, I have to pay them benefits and I have to consider them a full-time employee. If I can keep them at 39 and a half hours, then I don't have to do any of that. So I can make my bottom line look a lot better, right? And the workers are going, what happened to the days when the workplace was about the worker in addition to the company? We are not feeling valued. So the government handouts, I mean, I'll have to be critical of that, didn't help because that gave people the breathing room they needed to be able to walk away and say, you know, I'm done with you. I don't need you anymore. And a lot of them are seeking alternative employment. And when I call it the great reckoning, what I mean by that is that a lot of these companies are not going, hmm, maybe we need to change the rules a little bit here to make people feel more valued. And many of them have. We've seen, you know, salaries go up. We've seen offers of benefits go up. And I think, you know, somewhere in the middle of that lies the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's not a political comment. That's a reality comment. I mean, you want people to live? Well, you got to give them enough money to be able to. You mm-hmm. can't expect them to get by on on some of the wages that are being offered or have been offered historically. So this particular word, work-life balance, if, you have, if you're a manager or a leader and you have people saying, we have just got to get more work-life balance in our office culture, what if we just all just recognize that that word right there is going to mean so such so much different, so many different things to at least the three working generations right now, the ones major in the workforce? What if we change it to meaning? Like, isn't this a psychology that meets this quandary that we are all in? That so. maybe maybe we can't get over all the things that ageism is. And I look at ageism and I say it's just as much, you know, a boomer generation saying whatever they want to say that's probably in great error about the millennials as the millennials saying in great error what the boomers have to offer. Like if we had to step out of that, what if it was just came down towards matter? Right. What if it came down to leaders asking themselves, wow, how do we make sure meaning is part of our culture for every single employee. And what if leaders simply asked, what if they went to their people and said, what could we do to make this relationship more meaningful for you? Now, you're going to run the gamut. I mean, you're going to get the people that say, I'd like a four-hour work week with full pay. Okay, probably not going to happen. But I'd like to be able to take two hours or four hours a week and work on a community project that I feel really committed to. How is that going to possibly make them any less capable of doing their job, especially when the workplace says, as long as you get your work done and this is what we need from you, you can manage your time any way you want to within reason. Mm-hmm. Want to work at home? Work at home. You want to work in the office? Work in the office. This is what we need you to do. How you do that is up to you. It's what they used to print on cereal boxes, sold by weight, not by volume. Some settling may have occurred, right? You're buying a pound of Raisin Bran, whether it fills half the box or the full box, it's still a pound of Raisin Bran. So what's the issue here, really? And the and it, what it often boils down to is, I'm in charge. Not only am I going to tell you what to do, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And that means 40 hours a week in the office. Well, for what? 
I mean, every study that's been done shows people are more productive when they work at home. Mm-hmm. So where's the problem here? <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of the problem being that that the way some bigger business cultures work is there's so much, it's turning around the Titanic. I know a young person, a young engineer, 26, who works for a company that's been around for 171 years. And that is, on for one half, just an amazing, lovely attribute for this company. But they're only offering her 12, 12 vacation days a year, absolutely no virtual time. And she missed three out, three out of four family funerals in the last year because she had so few days, sick, personal, vacation, whatever. She had so few, three out of four family. Now that is a recipe for a broken heart in, a, in an employee. It's also a recipe for a severely dysfunctional company because there's no trust there. Mm. And if the trust is lacking, then you got a real problem. Mm-hmm. Because if you send the message to your employees that say, yeah, sure, another funeral, as opposed to simply saying, you know what your job is, I trust you to get it done, I'm sorry for your loss, do what you think is right. Now what you're saying is I'm empowering you to make the right decision because I trust you. Those employees are more likely to come back and say, this is a great company to work for. Mm-hmm. They trust me to do the right thing. So mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to do the right thing. Now, are there going to be exceptions? Of course, there are going to be exceptions. We're humans. There are people that are going to break the rules. We deal with those on an exception basis. We don't assume that every employee that walks in the door is out to put one over on us because we're a little liberal with the way we deal with ours, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's part of that big ship to turn problem. Yeah, that's arguably part of the generation. If you've got somebody at the top who's a 65, 70, that's the way they saw it. You know, they, and that's the way they call it. It's right? also, a, it's also a blind spot, Linda. You know, if it yeah. ain't broke, don't fix it. This is the way we've always done it. And it yes, works. Yes, it's yes. fine. Does it? Yeah. Sure about that. Right. I mean, that, that's the question. That's one of those questions that we need to be asking a lot. Okay. So. How do we, so since we can't change everything that we, every situation we find ourselves in, I mean, that's the, that's the secret to sanity is recognizing when, when you don't have agency and you just have to get a new perspective. Okay. So in work environments that are, that, because arguably this is part of what's going on that aren't changing to meet the new definition of meaning work-life balance, meaning for millennials, what, can, what? how can we think of the collaborations that need to be had? I could say this in families too. Like you said, it's so relevant. A lot of families are living with their senior, their parents' parents in the home. How do we make these collaborations? Well, there's a couple of things that need to be done. One is to simply be open to a real conversation. I mean, to be open to hearing, not just you know, not just sort of letting people talk, but really legitimately hearing what people have to say from the different generations with a mindset that says, I'm hoping to glean something of value from this engagement. I want to learn from this person. I want to walk away with something that's going to help me be better at dealing not only with them, but with sort of my whole sort of social ecosystem, for lack of a better phrase, Mm -hmm. right? I think that's one key thing. The second thing is, especially, and this is a workplace comment now, in the workplace, the fact is every workplace is multi-generational. If you simply go into it recognizing that every generation is a little different, they all want the same thing, but they want it in different ways. And every one of them brings something of unique value to that workplace. How are you going to harness that? How can I get the most from each generation? And one of the best ways to answer that question is to simply ask them, 
I mean, I use the example all the time, and I may have used it earlier. I can't remember where, you know, the boomers want to tell you what to do and how to do it. And the millennials look at them and say, let me just pause for a second. Let me get this straight. You give me my assignment. You say, this has to be done by this date, this time. It's important for the business. As long as I do it legally, correctly, morally, on time, and on or under budget, why do you care how I do it? And this gets back to the house story, the white painting the house story. Yeah, tell us that story. This is when the boomer's hair catches on fire because they can't get their head around this way to solve a problem because it means giving up control. And they're not wired to give up control, but they have to be. They have to learn to. And I mean, I'm picking on boomers. Every generation is this way. They all, to one degree or another, have to accept that there may be a different way of doing something. Give us the short course on the painting the house. We haven't gotten that recorded. I ran a program at a university a few years ago, and there was a guy in the program who lives in San Diego, and his son goes to school in Connecticut. and we were talking about this stuff and he started laughing in the middle of the class. And he said, I have to tell you this story. He said, you know, our son goes to school in Connecticut. We pay his tuition. And of course we give him a little bit of spending money because we don't want him working full time while he's in school. But there's a quid pro quo here. And that is that when he comes home for holidays, you know, when he comes home for Christmas or summer or long extended holidays, there are always going to be tasks around the house he must do to show his appreciation for the money we give him. That's kind of a a learning process. Well, he came home for the Christmas holidays, San Diego, and his dad said, look, while you're home, I need the trim on all the windows in the house painted. Live in a big house, kind of up on a hill, and it's got they've got 17 big picture windows. And the son said, yeah, sure, no problem. I can do that. Well, you know how it is. It's the holidays, friends, parties, all that stuff. Well, it's now getting close to the time when he's got to go back to school and his dad's going, you know, yeah, yeah I got this. Well, it's not happening. And the parents are contemplating this uncomfortable conversation they're about to have with their son about no money this semester because you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain. The morning before he was supposed to head back to Connecticut, the parents were awakened early in the morning, around eight o'clock in the morning, by a bunch of racket outside. They went outside where they found 17 kids, each one painting a window. The entire job took about four minutes. And of course, the father went running out going, no, 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 no. I told you I wanted you to paint the windows. And the son said, no, you told me you wanted the windows painted. There's a difference. Now, you and I've had this conversation, Linda. I want that kid working for me. I mean, that's my kind of employee. That's a problem solver. That's somebody who says, what's the best way to get this done so I can go back to the important stuff, meaning the last day I'm going to have with my friends. Okay. That's a classic example. The boomers feel the job must involve pain. No, the job involves getting the job done. How they do it should be up to them as long as it's done correctly. And of course it was. And he could, he said it took me weeks to figure out that, that was okay, that I could allow that to happen. So that's the story of the, of the painted house. Yeah. Yes. I think of my own experience in the working world with a multi-generational staff. And boy, once you sort of let go, both to the, I've been the youngest in my staff when we first, my husband and I are both dentists. When we first had a big dental practice, we had 17 employees. All of them were older than us. And then over the years, the situation has switched till now that we're the eldest. And I think that is the long and short of this generational, any of the generational debates or ageism or all the, the mispotential in what we're talking about 
is this not just pausing to accept that there is wonder in the differences in the way we think? That's right. Just because you do it that way doesn't mean it's the only way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I want to touch a few topics uh, because these are central to what we're all thinking about a lot these days. And I want you to help us understand because we're all living in families or work groups that don't look at these two topics very, very much the same. Talk to us about this whole mental health movement where we're all that they're, the younger generation are so at ease with seeking help with their childhood traumas or their habits that have formed in response to trauma. And the boomers at the other end of the spectrum, just it, there's so much shame in mental health. Talk to us about why that is. Yeah, that's a good word to choose to shame. I'm a big opponent of labels. We've had this conversation ourselves, but, but in this case, I'm going to, I'm going to use them because they're, they work for this particular conversation. I tend to refer to the boomers as the Superman generation, mm-hmm. the sole sort of individual that's going to save the world kind of thing. And I tend to think of the millennials as the three musketeers generation, all for one and one for all. And. If you look into their psyche a little bit, you'll start to appreciate what I'm talking about here. When we talk about the boomers, they're kind of individualistic. Many of their television shows were about individualistic characters that stood alone and got everything done. And as a result, if you couple that with their need to be in control, you start to get a sense of why they would eschew any suggestion of mental health care. To to admit that I need mental health care, to admit that I need counseling is to admit that there's something broken. I'm Superman. How could I be broken? I can't show weakness. I can't. And needing care is showing weakness. Look, boomers want to live forever, right? I mean, they want to live forever. I mean, I, you know, the sort of joke I use all the time, and I don't know if you can use this or not, but if you want to see evidence of this, just turn on television after about nine o'clock at night, pick any major channel. Don't watch the shows, watch the commercials. And what you'll find is that 100% of every single product that's advertised either hardens something or softens something. I mean, they're all targeted. They're all targeted right, you know, right at the boomers who are in that kind of tenuous place in life from a healthcare point of view. Who still watch TV and who still watch late at night. Yes, it's so targeted. And there you go, right? They're not cutting the cord. They're still attached. Right. So that's part of the problem is to to admit that I need help is to show weakness. And that's a really bad quality. It's a really bad, it's a damaging, dangerous quality for reasons I don't have to explain. Millennials are very supportive of each other. They are very much a collaborative generation. They're very much a generation that doesn't look for for to criticize. They look to support. They always have. It's a really interesting thing. You know, they're one of the first generations in the United States that I can honestly say is almost completely racially blind, colorblind, gender blind. They don't care. They just don't care. I mean, it's, it's like, whatever. I mean, you know, are you a nice person? Then I don't care what color you, I don't care where you came from. I really don't care. And so there's a great deal of openness and honesty associated with the generation. And I think that's very healthy. It's very good. And when you look at some of the work being done by people like Brene Brown, for example, who, who looks to shame as one of the most dangerous and damning things we have in society that we can do. I mean, to the point that they're recommending that we don't even use phrases like shame on you for behaving that way, because it, you know, it implies that something about you is badly broken and wrong and it's isolating. 
And in today's climate, especially where I wrestle with the fact that we are very much in this battle between community and tribe. And I feel this inexorable pull, inexorable pull toward tribalism as opposed to communalism, where it's very open and welcoming as opposed to exclusive. And, you know, if you don't have the secret handshake, you can't come in kind of thing. So I think that's where the middle health argument starts to come into play. And I think it's, it's very important and very powerful and it deserves a lot of attention, a lot of um, attention. And a lot of listening. Mm. So as we wrap up here, this is this is something that keeps coming up with a lot of the thought leaders I speak to, whether they're folks who've come up with some incredible idea to save all the remaining rainforest with old cell phones or what have you, all of the innovators and insightful people with fresh perspectives that I talk to. One of the threads that comes through the whole thing is is that they, when they're with others, they're almost waiting for what they're supposed to hear. They have this idea that everyone's got something, a gift for them. It's even like some of the innovators who I've talked to who have these incredible projects around the world, they can talk to one of their enemies, to someone who is like opposing whatever they're trying to do that's so important to our world. And they just assume that they're listening to understand and not to respond. And they assume that they're, that there's something that they're going to get as a gift from the perspective of others. Is that the way to break free of all this generational bias that we have? I think it's an important way. I think it's one of the contributing factors that we need to think about. And that is that one of my heroes, even though he turned out to be kind of an odd dude, was Charles Corral. Do you remember Charles Corral? Mm, sure. He did the Sunday morning show. He just drove yeah, yeah. around the home. And he was asked one time, you know, what is your job? What do you really do? And he said, my job is to find extraordinary things in ordinary people. And I've never forgotten that. I mean, that's the most brilliant, brilliant comment, you know, and it kind of guides me in a lot of ways. And I think that's the key here too. I think that everybody has a story to tell and every story is told because it's important to the person telling it, which means that there's gold dust you can mine in that story. So never miss a good chance to shut up, shut up and listen, hear what they have to say. And you may walk away with nothing. But it's rare that I engage with someone, hear their story, and walk away going, well, that was a waste of time. There's always something there. Yeah, and I think if we, if we all did that, you know, it would eliminate a lot of that confirmation bias that we all suffer from. It would cause us to be a little more open. It would cause us to not feel threatened when somebody says, mm -hmm. well, it's interesting you do it that way because I do it a little bit differently. Well, let's hear it. What do you do? That's not a threat. Mm -hmm. You're about to learn something new that you can do yourself. There's no copyright on how people think. <laughs> you know? And, you know, that brings it, us to a good point to end on is that you in the little pre-call that we had right before we started recording, you said this extraordinary little little thing that I think ma makes all the difference in the world is that we should we should not assume where people are going when they start talking. That is as much a, a handicap to ourselves that just so hobbles us is when we assume we know where people are going with their conversation. It kills companies. I mean, I, you know, you'll think about a salesperson who's having a conversation with a customer and the customers and they say to the customer, so what do you, what's your biggest issue at, at work? And they say, well, you know, for the last couple of months, we've been having some real serious issues with, and at that moment, the salesperson stops listening and what's going on in their own head is, they're listening to the little voice back here that's saying, 
Yeah, this is kind of like the guy I was talking to a couple of days ago, saying the same words. They need they need the new whiz bang five thousand. That's what I need to put in here, and they've just missed every single thing that person said afterward, which is kind of important because if you open the if you open the door and say talk to me, you better be listening because if you miss it, there's a good chance that whatever you propose is going to cause them to go. Were you even listening to me? This has nothing to do with what I told you we're suffering from. And I see it all the time, right? If you just open yourself to these people, if you just say, help me understand how you operate. I'm fascinated by how you do what you do. Linda, the other day, I don't have it here with me. The other day when I was in, uh, I was down in Greenville, down in Greenville, South Carolina with a client before I went to Iowa. And I was walking to a client dinner the first night I was there. And I was just, you know, kind of in my own little world walking along. And I hear this voice say, would you like to look at my book? And I turned around and there's this guy sitting on the, on a park bench there with what I thought was a box in his lap. And it turned out to be a stack of books. And I walked over and sat down next to him, older guy, kind of frail looking, but I sat there. I missed the first part of the dinner because this guy's lived in, he's lived all over the United States. He marched in the original, the original civil rights marches. A lot of his family had problems. You know, he's, he's African American. So he had a lot of problems and he wrote this book about his experiences. And I sat there just mesmerized by his story. And the thing that got me was it made me a little sad because what I anticipated and what actually happened were in fact one and the same, which was that. He'd ask people as they went by and people just ignored him. They wouldn't look at him. They wouldn't talk to him. What is the harm in saying, yeah, well, I ended up buying two of them. He wrote two books. I bought both of them. And they're really good. They're really good. They're poetry and they're powerful and they're they're right from this guy's heart. And I forced myself to do that. I mean, I wouldn't normally just go sit down next to a stranger and say, hey, talk to me. But I've learned that this is what moves you ahead. You know, now not everybody's going to have a story to tell like that, but this was solid gold. And he's agreed to be on my podcast. <laughs> you know? oh. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this, right? It doesn't. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't. No, we're going to all go away from this with fresh eyes about what's possible inside everyone we meet, regardless of their age. And it, it goes all ways, all directions, young and old, old and young, on and Indeed. on. Indeed. Yeah, we're just, there's a lot of missed opportunity as long as we hold those stereotypes about each other and what we each have to bring that's of value. That's right. the thing. We should just evaluate each other on what we bring that has value. So Steve, there you missed. You mentioned the podcast. I mentioned just before I started listening to Steve's podcast. It's it's a great short take on something of really thoughtful, thought provoking wonder. Talk to us about where people can connect with your work now. Sure. So the podcast is called the Natural Curiosity Project, and the only thing that ties the episodes together is the belief that every single thing I talk about is something that you should be curious about. Right. Sometimes I talk about how to read movie credits. Sometimes I talk about, well, the recording I made up near your place, Linda, where I recorded the sound of the frogs and talked a little bit about the biology of the frogs. Sometimes I talk about generations. Sometimes I talk about business practices. It's all over the map. But my whole point is through these little short episodes that are usually about 10 minutes long, I just talk about something that I learned about that I think is important and that I want people to know about. And what I find fascinating is I get a lot of messages from students who say, Thank you so much 
for giving me the topic of my next paper <laughs> or, or for professors and teachers who say, I'm going to incorporate what you talked about into my lesson plan because that's important. My, my work here is done. That's all I want. I just want people to slow down and go, you know what? That's kind of interesting. I'd like to know more about them. And the ones I've popped into are, you know, 10 to 15, 20 minutes, something like that. So it's so doable to do at a lunch break or waiting for the kids to be done with soccer practice or what have you. And really a great little flip of my perspective almost every time. And then you've got to turn us on to, we didn't get to talk about it this time. And we're going to have a different conversation about it. But Steve, Dr. Shepard is also the author of a book and that a recent book that had an entirely unusual twist because he included Mike Rowe in the book, you know, the dirty jobs guy. And it became very, very popular after he was, he discovered the book and talked about it on his podcast. But Steve's book is really, really an interesting, it's a novel. It's just an imaginary story about what would happen with a confluence of, do I have this right? If the earth's poles reversed and the United States had a woman president. Yeah. So the pole, polar reversal, which is sort of the, the theme was, it was the thing I needed to, you know, tongue firmly planted in cheek to cause the world to think a little bit differently all of a sudden. So North became South and South became North. And with that, people's thoughts flipped a little bit. And really what it is, it's a common sense take on if we were to figure out a way to leave the donkeys and elephants outside to tear up the lawn, bring the adults together and have a conversation about all the things that we could make better in this country, education, healthcare, the prison system, all of the things that are perceived to be broken, infrastructure, et cetera, what might that look like? And so I did, I, I actually calculated, I did around 9,000 hours of research because I discovered I knew very little about how parts of the government worked, how politics worked. I knew very little. And boy, let me tell you, I talk about an education. And so the result is this story that says, well, here's one take on it. And yeah, it became, the book became the number one best-selling title worldwide in political fiction on Amazon for about two and a half weeks, it continues to sell really, really well. It's called The Nation We Knew. And I think people would enjoy it. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Movie. And, you know, it is based on these premises that plant it firmly in a what if scenario. So no matter what your politics are, you don't need to get all high under the collar. It's just a what if exercise that I found so often through the book. Just <laughs> I think I read it in a day and a half, just straight through. So anyway, we are talking to a real giant in the world of technology and wisdom and knowledge and people. And I can't thank you enough, Dr. Shepard, for sharing your insight and this innovation. It's been great. Thank you, uh, Linda. Really fun. Really okay. Fun. And anything Steve and I mentioned, it's going to show up in the show notes so that you can harness some of these, the power of some of these concepts to help your own life thrive and, <laughs> and get rid of some of this unnecessary friction. We hope the insights and fresh ideas that we shared with you today carry you through your week and you see all the wonder and joy that we are seeing here at the Goodness Exchange. Thanks.